Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshallton, and today we're going to talk to historian Sarah Carter about her newly released book on the history of women voting in the three prairie provinces of Canada. Sarah Carter is one of Canada's most prominent scholars of prairie history, one who has placed Indigenous people and gender history at the centre of her research and writing. She is Professor and Henry Marshall Tory Chair in the Department of History and Classics at the University of Alberta. In 2020, she was awarded the Killam Prize in the Humanities, and her books have become landmarks in Canadian historical scholarship. These books include Lost Harvest, Prairie Indian Reserve Farmers and Government Policies, 1990, The Importance of Being Monogamous, Marriage, and Nation Building in Western Canada, which was published in 2008, Imperial Plots, Women and the Spade Work of British Colonialism in the Canadian Prairies. It was published in 2017 and was the winner of the Governor General's History Award for Scholarly Research. Today, we are going to talk to Sarah Carter about her newest book, Hours by Every Law of Right and Justice, Women and the Vote in the Prairie Provinces, published by UBC Press in 2020. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Greg. I'm very pleased to join you. Well, your main title uh, comes, uh, and I noticed from a partial quotation from Nellie McClung in 1915, and I'll quote it. We have sorely begrudged the time we have had to spend coaxing, pleading, reasoning, petitioning, seeing people agitating for something which was ours by every law of right and justice and which should never have been taken away from us. End of quotation. Now, the frustration here is palpable. Tell us a bit more about this quotation. As you mentioned, it is 1915. It's actually September 1915. And these are the words of suffragist, activist, novelist, and public speaker Nellie McClung. And she's responding to Alberta Premier Sifton. He's just released a statement saying that he is going to prepare um, a statute placing men and women in Alberta on a basis of absolute equality. And so she's very, very happy at this news, but she's also really worn out, as you've mentioned. And for sure, the frustration and the fatigue is very obvious. She continued to say, we rejoice particularly that we do not need to fight anymore. And we are tired of war, tired of campaigns and petitions and signatures and interviews. Um, so that's the end of that uh, addition to the quotation. So it was a really long and tiring campaign in all three prairie provinces. And McClung had actually worked in all three of these provinces, uh, but mostly in Manitoba. 
And this campaign was characterized by years of petitions, endless meetings, interviews with premiers and cabinet ministers, speeches in town halls, churches and labor halls, mock parliaments and more. And it had just taken years to build allies, both women and men. And they faced in all three prairie provinces a great deal of hostility and opposition. Uh, and this is why it, it took so long to achieve this goal. And McClung herself had been had particularly been a flashpoint or a target. She had been burned in effigy in Brandon, Manitoba. Oppo opponents claimed that she was a disgrace to motherhood, that she was neglecting her children, um, that her children had to be fed by the neighbors, and her husband was considering divorce. All of these were not true, but these rumors were very um, assiduously uh, circulated, especially by the conservatives. They spread these salacious rumors. Uh, and so to counter this, she began each meeting by saying that she had just called home, that she'd learned that the children were fine, they were all fed, the younger ones were in bed, and the older ones were doing her homework. But things also got really nasty for her. In one instance in Manitoba, she received an anonymous letter and it threatened to expose some incidents from her past. And she recalled this aspect of the campaign with great bitterness and, and wrote later, it's all rather pitiful to know that people can be so cruel. So that's why she's very tired. She often would mention that the hostility of other women was what she found most distressing. And she said one of the greatest discouragements to the whole campaign was the ridicule and criticism from the very people they were trying to help, that is, other women. But I'll just add that um, McClung had a huge number of supporters as well. Uh, she really became almost a celebrity, a star, especially in Manitoba, where she spoke to capacity audiences. They were overflowing outside on some occasions. She was known for her wit and humor, and she would talk to thunderous applause and laughter. And that was why uh, when she decided, the McClungs decided to move to Edmonton in, um, they come in December of 1914. Bob Edwards, who's the editor of the Calgary Eye Opener wrote, uh, that every night before turning into bed, we go down on our bended knees and pray to the Almighty to keep Mrs. McClung out of Alberta politics. But in fact, that never happened. She did become quite effective in the very last days of the campaign uh, here in Alberta. Well, as you point out, uh, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta were the first provinces to extend the vote to women in 1916. Uh, why were these three provinces first? Well, there's been considerable debate about this question. And one explanation is that settler women on the prairies faced unique and very debilitating circumstances, and that this led them to support activism. For example, they had no dower rights. And this was unlike married women elsewhere in Canada. So this meant that the farms... As wives, the farms that they helped establish could be mortgaged or sold by their husbands without their permission. And they could be left impoverished with their children. And there were many women across the prairies who were left in this position. So dower rights was one of the main issue on the prairies, as was homestead rights. So 
settler women or indigenous women for that matter could not file on the 160 acres of land that was the right of any immigrant male. Uh, so homestead rights was another big issue on, on the prairies. And of course, prairie women faced isolation as wives, mothers, and daughters. And so one of the explanations is that these factors made them much more determined to acquire the vote uh, to address these inequities. But there are other explanations and, and debate. Another explanation as to why prairie women were awarded or received the vote first is that the predominantly farm rural women of the prairies sought the vote to support the agenda of the organized farmers. They saw that they could double that vote and they could lend support to the farmers in, in struggles with grain dealers and the railways and the so-called Eastern interests. Another explanation is that the settler women of the West wanted to get rid of drinking and prostitution and gam gambling. And this argument is that the prairies were much more sinful than the rest of Canada. Uh, so women just got organized and they were determined to stop brothels and pool halls through gaining the vote. And so finally, another explanation is that settler male politicians of the day recognized and appreciated the work done by settler women in colonizing the West. They were seen as full partners, so the settler men decided to reward them with the vote because they held them in such high regard. So this explanation is that the vote was gifted to women because men were so grateful for their contributions. And a related idea is that female enfranchisement on the prairies encountered little resistance. My book argues that there's no one reason why the Prairie Region was first the first to grant women the vote, but there's a cluster of reasons. I do agree that settler women faced unique disabilities and inequalities within Canada, and that that did help them to rally and politicize them. Another argument is that the campaign was long and arduous, and that it's a myth that male politicians recognized them as equals and were just happy to gift them the vote. As I mentioned earlier, there was fierce and sustained opposition. And a new dimension that I hope I'm adding to the debate is that we need to understand the settler colonial context. This suffrage movement coincided with the years of intense colonization of the prairies when Indigenous people were dispossessed of their livelihood, their land and their rights as settler women were claiming these rights from themselves. Yeah, in fact, you, you point out that the franchise was not extended to First Nations individuals, both men and women, unless they gave up their treaty status, of course, until 1960 for federal elections. Uh, and that this, in fact, uh, affected others as well, beyond Indigenous people, including Chinese women and men. So what were the most important settler laws and institutions that entrenched this racist exclusion? Yes, so men and women who were governed by the Federal Indian Act of 1876 had, did not have voting rights in all three prairie provinces as in the rest of Canada. That, that act was crafted to ensure that no one defined as Indian could vote. They, they couldn't individually own any reserve land and they did not pay taxes. So they had no opportunities, um, they, they could not meet the franchise property qualifications. 
So you're correct in saying until 1960, unless they gave up their treaty status, uh, they could not vote. Uh, there was this long enfranchisement process that was set out under the Indian Act, um, and that was a way in which voting rights could be acquired, but as you say, it meant giving up treaty status, and it was rarely taken advantage of. So in the campaigns for the vote on the prairies, the activists sought equal voting rights with men, and at that time, no males or females governed by the Indian Act, the treaty people could vote. But I should mention, and it's, this is often overlooked, that after 1916, there were a lot of Indigenous, particularly Métis women, who could from then on vote. And as I found in the book, the first uh, woman Manitoba MLA, Edith Rogers, was e originally Edith McTavish, was a Métis woman. And you mentioned Chinese uh, voting rights. The only prairie province to exclude Chinese people from voting was Saskatchewan. Um, and as the federal voting list drew on the provincial lists, they were also prevented from voting federally until, as you say, the, the 1940s. Wow. Now, to what extent uh, did the attitudes of the suffragists and their respective organizations reflect the racist attitudes of the day? Well, I argue in the book that the, the the activists that I focus on did not all share racist or ethnocentric views in equal measure. So I find a variety of points of view and some clashes of opinion. For example, here in Alberta, the two most prominent activists were Emily Murphy of Edmonton and Henrietta Muir Edwards, who was located in southern Alberta. She actually lived on the Kainai or Blood Reserve and later in Fort McLeod. So Murphy was very intolerant and prejudiced against Indigenous people and immigrants who were not British. And she believed firmly in the superiority of what she called the Northern races. That definitely did not include Indigenous people. And she just deplored the arrival of, of, of Eastern Europeans. And she, she, she was a writer who wrote under the pen name Janie Canuck, and she wrote that Indigenous people had no future. She predicted they were just going to die out. And she she wrote that they did not belong in the towns and cities. But Edwards was very different. As I mentioned, she lived on the Kainai Reserve. She never expressed any of the sort of views that Murphy frequently and widely um, circulated, though Edwards never advocated either for the equal political rights of Indigenous women. Um, and in Manitoba, the Bainan sisters, journalists, were also very different from Murphy. Uh, but none of this generation of activists questioned the fact that First Nations women and men could not vote. Sarah, I'm going to make you our witness to yesterday. Take us back to just before 1916 and describe what it would have been like to have been an active suffragist in one of the Prairie Provinces. Okay, I'm going to choose Saskatchewan because it is my home province and yours, I understand. That's right. So just before 1916, I would have been extremely fed up, frustrated, getting very vexed and also very worried because my son, husband, brothers, they're all overseas and I fear for their lives on the battlefields. We're daily reading about the wounded and the missing and the dead. 
Yeah, I, I have absolutely no say in how this war is being conducted. And I want to stop the bloodshed and I want to stop it forever. Um, and, the, and the campaign's been so frustrating time and time again. For years, we've signed petitions and written letters to Premier Walter Scott, but he only listens politely and cordially and tells us to go away and get more signatures and more letters. And he's making us virtually beg for what we see as our lawful right. And his ministers continue, continually insist that, that they don't think women want the vote. Their wives certainly don't want the vote is what they claim. And they claim that women wouldn't use it if they had it. So it is, in, in uh, 1916, I'm, I'm still in January of that year um, taking a petition on foot. It's another horrible winter. And we're still on foot or on horseback or horse and buggy to circulate and get more signatures. So I'm really near the end of my rope. That's how I would feel if I was a suffragette in Saskatchewan in uh, 1916. And would you see some light at the end of the tunnel or would you see that it's gonna take years more to get the, the franchise? Well, it, it happens in Saskatchewan uh, almost rather suddenly on uh, Valentine's Day of 1916. Um, but I, but we were beginning, yes, to see the writing on the wall because it's clear already that both Manitoba and Alberta are going to enfranchise women. And I think that we're seeing that Premier Scott doesn't want to be left behind. He's not going to see any advantage in delaying any longer. Um, he might be defeated if he remains intractable, and like Roblin was defeated. So, and Scott's facing charges of graft and corruption, so he might be toppled. So we see it coming in a way, but it was so frustrating to still be told even in early January of 1916 that we needed even more signatures on petitions. Now, your separate chapters on Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba reflect your view that the franchise was achieved in really different ways in each of these provinces, hence a separate chapter for each. But uh, can you describe what some of the common elements across all three provinces were? I would start with uh, a common element being the accepted and unquestioned exclusion of First Nations voters, women and men. Another was the fact that the activists were all settlers, that is, they were all from somewhere else, and they arrived as colonizers to the West. Most were of British ancestry, and that was with the notable exception of the Icelanders of Manitoba, men and women, who were very active in that province. They were mostly Protestant. They were deeply religious. They endorsed the settler colonial goal of erasing and replacing Indigenous people. Uh, on the prairies, as I've mentioned, Dower and Homestead rights. Another commonality was the important role of the Women Christian Temperance Union in organizing for the cause. Another similarity is uh, across the prairies, but also really across Canada, uh, the activists shunned the confrontational and militant activities of the British suffragettes. There was no broken windows or, or jail terms or hunger strikes here. In all three provinces, there were long and protracted campaigns there was very deep, uh, persistent anti-suffrage opposition. And, um, but in each province, I would say there were significant numbers of male supporters and very vocal advocates. 
Another similarity, or final one, is that it was the Liberal Party in all three provinces that passed the 1916 legislation. But that doesn't mean, however, that the Liberals were always consistently staunch, devout supporters of the cause. So those are the similarities. What were the unique circumstances then in each of these provinces? Well, Manitoba was, uh, it began much earlier in the 1890s. Uh, so there was sort of a, a first very active outcropping that has no parallel in the other provinces. And that was led by a very interesting um, early woman physician in the province, Dr. Amelia Yeomans, and also the very interesting Cora Hind, who was an agricultural um, journalist with the Winnipeg Free Press, Manitoba Free Press. So there was this earlier outcropping. In Manitoba, the opposition was more vocal and more intransigent, like Premier Roblin was totally unmoved by arguments and he regularly trotted out his fears that the sanctity of the home would be invaded if women vote could, could, could vote. He was saying things like he loved his mother uh, and she had never wanted to vote. Uh, so that so Roblin doesn't quite have a parallel. The other premiers were more cordial and listened and respectful, although they weren't necessarily supportive. Um, in Manitoba, there was more working class support. I also mentioned the Icelandic women and men's contribution was very important in Manitoba. Manitoba, there was much less organized farm women's involvement. And another difference was that the issue becomes political in 1914 when the Liberals make it a platform. So you have supporters like McClung going out on the hustings and campaigning for Liberal candidates. And that's when she becomes such a target of the Conservatives and is you know, branded a, um, a poor mother and so on. But also there was more dramatic events and more entertaining events like the famous mock parliaments in 1914, in July of 1914 uh, in Winnipeg. So that's the, that's the Manitoba scene. Saskatchewan was quite different. The movement was driven by farm and rural women and most notably British settler uh, Violet McNaughton and the Saskatchewan women's grain growers. And as I mentioned, there was a much less readily caricatured arch enemy. Premier Scott was definitely reluctant um, and used all sorts of uh, delaying tactics, but he, he never pronounced himself adamantly opposed as, uh, as uh, Roblin had done. So Alberta farm women leaders and organizations played a secondary role. Uh, they're the two main urban centers and um, of Calgary and Edmonton provided the main fuel for the campaign. There was a, a much larger range of proposals for the franchise than in Manitoba or Saskatchewan. And in Calgary, American women had a marked influence that you don't see to that to any extent in Manitoba and to a lesser extent in uh, in Saskatchewan. So the most influential activists in Edmonton were really the drivers in the final stages through their Edmonton Equal Franchise League. It was home to the University of Alberta, and there were professors and their spouses who were determined to see this through and to avoid potentially divisive stands. So I was pleased to learn about um, activists even in my own department uh, back in 
1914 to 16 era with the Edmonton Equal Franchise League. So how did the victory for the franchise in the prairies contribute to the battle for the right of women to vote in federal elections, first in 1917 and then in 1918? In other words, how influential was uh, the movement generally in the prairies in terms of, of getting the vote federally? Well, they, they certainly got the ball rolling. Um, the Prairie victories were, were very important in contributing to the, the wartime federal battle. Um, and advocates had believed, they'd been told by Borden, that the provincial franchise would automatically confer the federal franchise. But it remained quite a fight. Federal politicians remained opposed. Um, and they insisted that the federal vote was important. It, 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 it involved things like going to war and that women should not be involved in these sorts of decisions. Those were the arguments that were made, that the vote should be restricted to males. So Borden tries to stall the issue, and he eventually closes debate by saying it was not desirable to have women in one province voting in Dominion elections when women in other provinces were not able to do so. So he was not going to sanction the ability of the prairie women to vote when the provincial legislation had not yet been passed in other of the provinces. And then the role of Nellie McClung is important here as well. Borden grows to see that the vote of some women could be very useful. And Nellie McClung agrees. She has a son, Jack, he's still quite young and he went to war and she is just completely at her wits end and nervous about him um, being killed or, or, or wounded. And she has broken ranks with other suffrage supporters in really supporting the, the cause of the war and conscription. And what happens is that the former unified supporters in the West become very fragmented with the Winnipeg Bainan sisters utterly opposed to the war and McClung is all in for the, for the war effort. And McClung and Borden want the franchise limited to women who will support the war and conscription. And this really is um, very much opposed by the Bain and sisters and others. McClung does try to backtrack, but the damage is done and, and the fragments never are put back together. So we have the Military Voters Act of September 1917, providing that all British subjects who had participated in any branch of the armed forces could vote in any general election during the war, and that included nurses, most of whom are women. And that same month, there was the Wartime Elections Act that disenfranchised conscientious objectors, along with anyone who'd been born in an enemy country. So many women of those ancestries lost the right to vote. Um, and the new act awarded the franchise to most female British subjects who were older than 21 and who had a close relative serving in the armed forces. It's notable that the Wartime Elections Act did not enfranchise First Nations women who were married to soldiers or were otherwise related to them, so this created a second-class category. Borden was just simply using this to weed out opponents and to add supporters uh, for conscription. So it's a complicated story, but the, certainly the Prairie Victories really does um, get the ball rolling federally. Mm. Well, Sarah, 
Thank you so much for joining us today with a fascinating uh, piece of Canadian history. Well, you're welcome, and I hope this helps to gain uh, a, an audience uh, uh, beyond just sort of the um, the, the printed book, uh, because these issues are really important today, and we need to recognize uh, the work that this generation of women did and their supporters, male supporters as well. They did take very significant steps toward broadening the franchise. And um, so we have to be grateful to them despite the limitations uh, of their of their vision and their achievements. My guest today was Sarah Carter. She is the author of Hours by Every Law of Right and Justice, Women and the Vote in the Prairie Provinces, published by UBC Press in 2020. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you can become a subscribing member and actually help support this podcast. If you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. We want to thank the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, the University of Ottawa Press, and the University of British Columbia Press. My name is Greg Marshallden. This interview was recorded on February 12, 2021. It was produced by the ever-helpful Jessica Schmidt.